0: Welcome to Venezuela Analysis end of year podcast. I'm your host Jose Luis Granado Ceja. This is a special episode, a bit different from the rest, where we'll be reviewing the top stories of the year as chosen by the staff, and the whole team is here. I'm joined by Sira Pascua Marquina, Andreina Chavez, and Ricardo Vaz. So here at Venezuela Analysis, I tend to focus on the stories that have an international or regional angle. So we're gonna start with that. And I thought, for me, one of the biggest stories this year uh, in that regard, was the high-level U.S. delegation to Venezuela. As we know, the delegation led by White House Latin America advisor Juan González travels to Caracas in March of this year, where they met directly with Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro and Vice President Darcy Rodríguez. We know Venezuela broke off diplomatic relations with the U.S. in 2019 after they recognized opposition figure Juan Guaidó as interim president. You know, And with Biden largely keeping Trump's maximal pressure strategy in place, it seemed like the U.S. strategy towards Venezuela was, in a sense, focused on isolating Maduro, imposing these crippling sanctions on the country, especially the energy sector, seizing together with allies the country's fourth assets. And I think one of the ways that we could sum up the March visit is by pointing out that this is essentially a collapse of that strategy. How are you trying to isolate somebody and then meeting with them? We know that this meeting was actually followed by a subsequent one in June that was more focused around the U.S. citizens that were in Venezuelan custody. Uh, But nonetheless, it was two high-level delegations. And I think that if these delegations to Venezuela by the U.S. were a fatal blow to the internato, right? We know Juan Guaidó wasn't even invited. He wasn't even told of the meetings. Certainly the first one he was told the morning of that it was happening. And didn't even have a chance to meet with the US delegation, some president, right? But anyway, if that was the fatal blow, then I think the trip to the COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh, in some ways, was the death rattle of the Internet. You know, we saw Maduro being sought out by French President Manon Macron, shaking hands with US climate envoy John Kerry, even if Washington tried to play down the event. Far from being isolated, Maduro was once again on center stage, representing Venezuela as he should as a democratically elected president. You know the proxy war in Ukraine has really forced imperialism to suspend certain aspects of its hybrid war in Venezuela. This is the result of that, and you know I think it's important to point out that the end of the isolation of the Maduro government is due to changes in the region. We've seen leftists and progressives elected in contests throughout the hemisphere, and that means that imperialism now has fewer allies who will tolerate or even facilitate their interference in Venezuela. So. I know, personally, I I feel a certain sense of anti-imperialist pride to see that U.S. strategy fail. But can it be said that Venezuela has triumphed?
1: Thoughts? I think it depends a bit on what we define by triumph. If we're talking simply about this uh, maximum pressure, make Venezuela a pariah state, then certainly it has triumphed. Nobody even dares to call... uh, quite old president anymore. I mean, except his acolytes. I remember in the beginning of the Trump strategy, we had these idiotic statements by then secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, referring to Maduro as the former president of Venezuela, That as if that would magically change reality on the ground. So in that sense, uh, it, it, it's kind of uh, discourse catching up to reality because for all the, the talk and all the international tours that Guaido had got to do, reality on the ground was always that Maduro was in charge in, in, in the meaningful se- sense of the word. He is the elected president. The government, in all these difficulties, which, which I'm sure we'll discuss, was uh, the one paying wages and handling security and, and all the things that are associated with the state. So in the sense, now you get to see this victory lap by the Maduro government, kind of rubbing in everyone's faces that you tried to, to oust us and you failed. Whereas that amounts to a triumph, we'll, we'll have to see, because these very harsh sanctions are still in place. We'll I'm sure we'll dedicate a lot of time to that. But it has at least gained some ground in terms of, uh, on one hand, forcing the US to change strategy, and we kind of know from from these ever present ever present uh, anonymous sources that the Biden administration wasn't convinced by the Trump strategy but because it doesn't have too much of a spine and doesn't want to create any kind of scandal that would cost them political points they didn't really know how to shift from it until the the conflict in Ukraine began and and it kind of became urgent to address the volatility in global energy markets and and they came to Venezuela and this was really a surprise uh politics in Venezuela is always unpredictable, so there's always a lot of work for journalists like us. But this, even by that standard, was very surprising when we found out that there was a U.S. delegation on its way to Venezuela. So to sum up, I think some progress, but still a lot of work to be done.
2: Yeah, very briefly. I mean, basically with uh, delegations, I want to highlight something that is already uh, been uh said, but basically the Ukraine war begins on February 24th and the first U.S. delegation uh, happens in early March. So basically I think that the geopolitical situation shifts or opens for the possibility of, uh, as Ricardo was saying, um, with the Biden delegation perhaps wanting to uh, generate a different kind of a relationship in terms of oil uh, purchases from Venezuela, but not having the whereabouts to do it. the Ukraine war kind of like opens up the way, but it is only more recently i mean actually in the last week that things have actually begun to to really change with the dialogues in Mexico and with uh, basically with the chiefs in terms of uh, the Chevron license.
3: Yeah, I also wanted to add something like really brief because I agree with Ricardo that uh, Guaidó never had any kind of political power in Venezuela besides maybe publishing pointless videos on Twitter. But uh, I mean, there is one aspect of the Guaidó experiment that was successful and continues to be successful and that is stealing Venezuelan funds and assets abroad and you know you have to remember that they use waido as an excuse to steal Sitco, the oil subsidiary in in the US and they use him as an excuse to say that now now, now Sitko is going to be under control of waido under control of the venezuelan opposition and this happened in 2019 in fact, Maduro, President Maduro was saying recently that uh, Citgo has accumulated at least $4 billion in in profit in these four years. And, you know, so it, there, are, there are a lot of resources that they have stolen because they use Guaido as the excuse to do that. So, yeah, I just want them to sort of remember that.
0: Yeah. And also remember that there are Venezuelans who are continuing to resist this and are very much cognizant of the impacts of U.S. policy towards Venezuela, but nonetheless continue to persevere and find creative solutions, working class solutions to the problems that are generated by U.S. imperialism in Venezuela. And that brings me to our next story that we want to talk about in terms of the important events of 2022. So we know that the Union Comunera held its Congress and some of our staff were actually able to participate and personally witness and, and see that momentous occasion. Ricardo, talk to us about the Unión Comunera Congress. Why was it important? Why is this your top story for 2022?
1: Indeed, when we were talking about which stories to select, this was the first one that came to my mind because I think this uh, popular power is perhaps the the topic that's less covered in, in the corporate media. And so the one that we make the biggest effort to get it out there so the readers can understand what's going on. And, and this is, in fact, a, a key component of, of the Bolivarian process, you know, beyond the geopolitical implications and the anti-imperialism, this bottom-up construction is really important. And on the matter of uh, grassroots resistance against the, the U.S. blockade, we have published, ASIRA has, has been doing some great work in publishing a series of interviews with communists and other popular organizations to understand how this resistance has come from popular organization. So the Common Art Union, Union, just, just to be brief, is an organization bringing together communes across the country to build an alliance on on a national scale. So right now, there are between 50 and 60 communes participating. Communes, just just to recall, were defined by Chávez as the unit cell for the construction of socialism. They are territorial, democratic units of self-government. And so, the crisis has meant a lot of setbacks for these types of uh, socialist organization, because I mean, we have to we have to be self-critical as well. There was a lot of dependence on state resources, which was hurt by the crisis and, and then further hampered by sanctions. There was migration, a lot, a lot of things which uh, were meant significant step, uh, setbacks for, for popular power. But then at some point, these organizations started to get together and realize that if they uh, united and tried to join forces, then they could move forward. So this Congress was very significant in that regard. It was kind of a culmination of a process that was already a couple of years in, in the works. And it was very inspiring for us to, to be there. Uh, I mean, there, there's always a kind of despair that comes into you at some point when you think that uh, perhaps the most advanced elements of what of the socialist project here have faded. But then you, you go out and, and you see that that's not the case and even even sometimes we just fall into the same handful of comments that have a lot of projection and it can it can give the illusion that there's nothing else but then you go to these meet to these meetings and you realize realize that there's a lot of work being done there's a lot of uh, very committed activists and militants across the country perhaps they're not they don't have a, such a successful communications policy. But one aspect that I would highlight from the Common Art Union Congress, of course, there's a lot of work ahead, is perhaps some of the, the, the implications that were apparent just in, in this microcosm. So this brought together some 500 communards from some 50 communes across the country. They gathered in, in El Maizal, in, in Lara State, that's kind of northwestern Venezuela. And there were rumors that the government, and Maduro in particular, was not very happy with, but who was then his common minister, that she was not aware that these very radical and committed hundreds of communists were gathering, and she had no idea that this was going on. So on the spot, or in this day, he actually appointed a new communist minister, someone who's probably more familiar to our audience, Jorge riaza former foreign minister. And he came to the Communard Union Congress the next day to salute the communards and so on. But it kind of highlighted this uh, what has always been a difficult relationship, a complex relation rather with the state, which sometimes supports this uh, grassroots construction, but at some time, at some point, also wants to co-opt. And it's always a struggle, a, a tense relationship between you know bottom-up construction and and top-down practices. But it it went to show that that comments are still very much a relevant factor in, in Venezuela and and hopefully I know there's a lot of effort being put in the Communist Union can continue to to strengthen and to uh, reiterate that that socialism is really the horizon for for this project.
2: Indeed, the uh, the Congress which um, happened in early March, March third and fourth, fourth I think uh, the Congress was really extraordinary. And I think that one of the things that stuck to my mind is what Angel Prado, who is the key leader spokesperson of El Maisal I in mean, what he said when he was doing his opening remarks, which were very, really very interesting. He said that uh, basically a few years before El Maisal had found itself facing both the counter revolution and uh, calls the reformist, what he called the fifth column, an internal reformist, fifth column. So basically, he was highlighting that uh, in the face of the situation with obviously kind of like the imperialist siege on Venezuela, which has an impact on everybody's life and the historical right, right in Venezuela, which is very violent, in the face of that, but also in the face of a sort of reformist tendency, we had what he called the fifth column within the government. That they began to reflect on the need to build a coordination a space for for different communes to come together, and this is actually very important because the commune basically Chavez in Allo Presidente Teórico Number One, which is the first space with where Chavez actually does a big. Um, kind of like address and reflection on what the commune is. Uh, Chávez said that the commune that stays isolated can actually become counter-revolutionary. And Chávez always emphasized the need to, for communes to bring together. If communes are, and they are indeed, basically the basic self for building socialism, but you cannot build socialism on an island. So then that's why uh, Chávez called for the actually he talked about the federation of communes as a need uh, and as as an objective to build the the post capitalist uh, communal society so this was a really interesting space a lot of a lot of uh, interesting um people from the different communes talking about their experiences reflections on the political conjuncture and finally um on the second or the the third day the, the second day, uh, Jorge Arriaza, the who Ricardo was just mentioning, uh, came to the to the Congress and and made some remarks as well. But basically, the objective of the of the uh, Congress was a self-run and it was a self-run initiative uh, with the objective of strengthening the ties between communes and in general strengthening the communal project. So cool.
0: Certainly, nowhere do I feel like socialism is actually on the horizon than when we talk about the communes, when we talk about the efforts, the grassroots efforts in Venezuela to truly build a different kind of society, different kinds of social relations. It, it's truly incredible, and and I can't help but think about this character on Twitter who was trolling our account a few days ago, you know, talking about how you know Venezuela analysis is a bunch of stooges and all we do is uh, toe the government line. When obviously. What we try to do, principally, is to amplify the voices of the Bolivarian grassroots, the people who are are deeply engaged in this process of actually building socialism, and under incredibly difficult circumstances, no one like Venezuelans understand imperialism and its actions to try to dominate a country. And so, um, I think it's incredible the work that we've been able to do, and and the work that we did around the Congress, also really trying to uh, amplify the voices so that people understand that 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 this is a very real process of construction to build socialism in Venezuela. And I want to stay on this topic of grassroots mobilization to move on to our next, uh, topic of 2020, of 2022. So Sira, you were mentioning that for you, the big story this year was the mobilization, of Venezuelan women and their allies, the feminist march that happened not too long ago in September. Talk to us about this event.
2: On September 28th, uh, Thousands of Venezuelan women took the streets of Caracas uh, for the depenalization, decriminalization of abortion. I guess I should give a little bit of a context first. Uh, basically, uh, well, September 28th is actually the day for access to safe abortion. And in Venezuela, uh, abortion is criminalized with uh, basically a penal code that is about a hundred years old. And uh, the Criminalization of abortion in Venezuela is really uh, on the continent is basically with Paraguay and Guatemala as the most retrograde uh, legislation when it comes to sexual and reproductive rights. So um, Venezuela's anti-abortion uh, legislation basically bans abortion, including in cases of rape, of incest, of fetus inviability. And uh, there are four articles in the Penal Code that basically establish that uh, a person who carries out an abortion will, have, will get six months to two years in prison, and a person who, a doctor or a person who helps in the process will uh, face one to three years in jail. So basically, and this is, as I was saying, the the Venezuelan Penal Code dates back to the earlier, to, earlier 20th century. And that's where we have these, uh, that's how we inherit this very backward legislation. Of course, which women can abort here in clandestine conditions. There are organizations of women who... Uh, company or basically offer information to women to explain to them how they can have the interruption of a a pregnancy. But the truth is that uh, the high maternity mortality in Venezuela is, the the mortality is higher than in the rest of the region. There are many child mothers and uh, there are many, many unwanted pregnancies. So basically this is kind of like the context. It's a it's a context of a struggle that we are in, that we are in right now on march twenty eighth as I was saying, well thousands of women we and men too uh, we went to the streets for the decriminalization of abortion, like last year, we also had a very large march last year. This march was uh, is mostly chavista, but it brings together different sectors that are not chavista, so this is actually interestingly a dispute or a battle that is being fought within Chavismo, as well as with some allies that are outside of Chavismo, but that identify themselves as left. And particularly in this march, um, one of our big objectives was to make it be seen that there is a proposal for a new organic law. It's called the Organic Law for the Sexual Rights and Reproductive Rights of People. And this is a grassroots a legislative proposal that uh, would warranty it passed the sexual and reproductive rights of women teenagers and the lgbtqi community what uh, this law does is open up the what it would do is that it would open up for sexual education access to contraceptives and it would eliminate the for um, articles in the penal code that criminalize abortion. Now, this is a proposal, a law proposal, and because Venezuela is a participative and protagonic democracy, there is a channel so that the people can propose a law to the National Assembly. We have to gather 22,000 signa- well, 22, signatures, so that the law proposal will enter for first debate in the National Assembly, and then of course the National Assembly would Vote in favor or against it. Up to now, we have 10,000 uh, signatures collected, and uh, we are we continue in this struggle to depenalize uh, abortion in Venezuela.
0: I'm wondering why you consider this to be a. Major event. Do you consider that perhaps there was a change in the balance of forces as a result of this mobilization? We know these kinds of protests and, and mobilizations are, are constant present in Venezuela. What set this one apart for you?
2: Well, basically, this mobilization, as I said, it, it happened last year. It was large. This this year, it's been growing. Basically, I think that there, the the struggle for the, the decriminalization of abortion is growing. This is a this is a. Basically, a continental struggle, right? Uh, basically, uh, in the con- in the whole, I mean, it's a global struggle. But I basically, uh, in the last few years, we have seen these these uh, marches and movements for uh, the sexual and reproductive rights of women growing in the continent. And Venezuela, while it is at the tail end in terms of sexual and reproductive rights, it is not at the tail end in, in terms of women's disposition to fight for our rights so i think it's obviously i mean it's it is an it's an important uh struggle it's an open debate yeah and right now uh hopefully we will be getting closer to this law getting to the national assembly and that will for sure uh be news when we do when that law gets to the national assembly
3: yeah i mean i was with Sira and Ricardo and many others in this march that we had on September 28th. And I agree with Sira that this is like, a. I feel like this is like the first time we're seeing like popular organizations from all political sectors, like really united for one goal, which is to finally have Sunday, legal abortion in Venezuela, because we know this is a problem of public health. Uh, many activists who are very dedicated to this issue have reminded us time and again that abortion uh, continues to be like one of the main causes of uh, maternal mortality in Venezuela. Like a lot of women are dying because of this, and there's also a huge problematic because. Many teenage girls are, there's an increase in pregnancy in teenage girls. So we are, we also have to tackle that. Um, and, you know, the, these past few days, I've been talking a lot with some of these uh, amazing activists, feminist activists in Venezuela, and something that they they are always saying is that Venezuela doesn't have any data about abortion, like official data about how many abortions are happening or how many women are dying because they're having unsafe abortions since two thousand and sixteen. So this is this is really uh, this is awful because how do you create public policies to uh, to prevent these things from happening if you don't have any data, if you don't have any data available about this problem. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of things about this issue of sexual and reproductive rights and abortion that, that we truly need to to talk about more and debate more in Venezuela and in the whole continent.
1: Yeah, ju- just a quick comment on, on this matter, because feminist movements have grown a lot in, in recent years. And not, not just on the issue of abortion, which has, of course, been very active, as Siren as and Reina were just describing, but also others, for example, the, the, fight against, uh, to, the fight to eliminate violence against women, which is also a very serious problem. There, there's a, what's called a femicide monitor tracking all the cases of uh, people who, who assassinate their, their wives or, or their partners. And using that, because as Andrei was saying, there's a bit of a a shortcoming in terms of data collection from the state. So, independently, people are are collecting data to kind of pressure the state institutions to 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 respond. And the other thing, just just very briefly, that Sira mentioned in the beginning, but I think it's worth highlighting, is that Families Movement somehow understood. That it, it's not a dilemma of whether you are Chavista or not, or whether you support the government in everything you do. Rather, you should build a, an independent agenda and then present those demands. I mean, as long as you are clear as to who you are fighting for and who you are, then th- those dilemmas are, are just uh, superfluous. So, in that sense, they were very, feminist movements were, were very active during the the pandemic, for example, while everybody else was in a bit of a of a coma not knowing what to do they continue to organize and, and push forward their agenda and i think that's been very inspiring to see you
0: know this conversation makes me think of this slogan that you hear on the streets certainly a lot in these demonstrations ni la tierra ni nuestros cuerpos son territorios de conquistas nor our bodies nor our territories are lands or territories for conquest. And I think in a lot of ways, it's important to highlight precisely that the struggle for autonomy is also a personal struggle. And I think this is one of the, the issues that, that best highlights the need to uh, defend that principle precisely. Uh, but I also think, you know, when we're talking about uh, reproductive rights, when we're talking about women's health, it's it's important to take in consideration that Venezuela still remains a country under siege under unilateral course of measures, and that has had major effects on women's health and on reproductive rights. And I think in that, especially in that context, it's important for women to be able to, I mean, obviously always, but in this context, to be able to choose um, because they know that the, the, they're operating under severe limitations when it comes to, to women's health.
2: That's right. Uh, basically, um, access to contraceptives becomes all the more difficult in a situation like ours. Um, with the sanctions and uh, the the whole kind of like panorama actually makes it all the more pressing to to decriminalize abortion. I wanted to mention just a couple of uh, things very briefly. Uh, Ricardo was talking about the situation with gender based violence. And last year, 239 women were, were killed. This is a, a grassroots initiative that's actually, uh, basically organized by Utopics, um, a grassroots initiative that tracks uh, how many people are, how many women are killed in femicides. Uh, Two hundred and thirty nine. Uh, it's a, it's a very very high number, and this is uh, data that has been self gathered, so the numbers may actually be higher. I want to encourage everybody who is uh, listening to us to actually read an article by Andreina about the march. Also, to read an interview that we did recently with Laura Cano. Uh, it's called uh, "The Struggle to Decriminalize Abortion," and we have a fair amount of content on the feminist struggle in Venezuela. So we encourage you to to read our
0: contents on that issue. So we were talking just about, about the impact of sanctions, and obviously, this is the issue every year unfortunately we continue to see the application of these unilateral course of measures and all the negative impacts that it it implies it's one of the topics that we cover extensively i think it's one of the things where we have a responsibility to highlight because people in the global north need to understand that sanctions sound like this you know soft term the soft power exercise but the reality is, is that it's incredibly punishing it has deadly consequences for the people who are the victims of U.S. sanctions. So that brings us to our final story that we wanted to look at, which is the situation of the Venezuelan economy and the impact of sanctions. You know, there's been this talk of Venezuela going through somewhat of an economic recovery. We know there's been a certain liberalization uh, measures that have been put into place. We've seen a de facto dollarization of the economy. And obviously, this all has impacts on the working class and campesino population of Venezuela. And Andreina Chavez is our resident expert on this. Honestly, sometimes I'm really quite impressed at how she's able to capture these news stories on the topic, which are very difficult to try to digest, but also make it very understandable and tying it into the reality in Venezuela. So Andreina, talk to us about this. Talk to us about the economy, about sanctions, and what it all means.
3: Thank you, Jose Luis, and... It's so good to listen to everyone, you know, analyzing everything about Venezuela, especially about communes and feminism. And before I begin, I just want to thank Jose Luis because he has made this podcast possible for a year and he has produced so many amazing episodes. And so I just want to invite everyone who is listening to please uh, listen to every episode of the podcast and to not miss it next year because... This is truly like the easiest way to find out everything that is going on in Venezuela and to actually hear what's going on from the people that are on the ground. So yes, thank you Jose Luis. And now about the new story that I'm going to talk about. It is is the economy and sanctions against Venezuela. And I just want to clarify that, of course, uh, talking about this topic is very complex and. So I'm going to try to say something like, like very quick and maybe everyone can join me later and explain more about it. So I think I need to begin with Chevron because this is like the most important story of the moment. So Chevron is being granted a limited license uh, for about six months to resume oil operations in Venezuela. And they can actually take that oil to the United States and only to the United States. This happened on November twenty-six, right after the Venezuelan government sat down once again to talk with one sector of the Venezuelan opposition in Mexico, and you know Washington presented this new license given to Chevron as a as a positive consequence of the Mexico talks. You know it was presenting as if they were easing sanctions against Venezuela, and none of that is true. The truth is Chevron had been lobbying Washington for a license to produce and sell Venezuelan oil for a very long time. So this is a corporation that has major oil projects in Venezuela, and for almost two years, it hasn't been able to produce or collect any profit because of the sanctions against Venezuela's oil industry. So, you know, if you think about it, framing this license given to Chevron in the context of political talks between the Maduro government and the opposition is just a way of hiding that this is Washington helping Chevron obtain what it wants and making it look like they are easing sanctions against Venezuela without really doing it, because Venezuela's economy and especially the oil industry is still completely under sanctions, completely blocked, and the Venezuelan people are still suffering from that. Like we still have a, a huge migrant population that huge amount of people that left the country because it's because of the economic crisis, and although some people are coming back, the reality is that the majority can come back because we still don't have the conditions, the economic conditions to welcome all these people. So, and in fact, uh, we still don't know how much Venezuela will get from Chevron resuming oil operations because the license establishes like. Several conditions to block any profit for the Venezuelan government for the Venezuelan state. So, um, but you know, although Venezuela has uh, President Maduro has welcomed the license, and we already saw Venezuelan state oil company PDVSA and Chevron signing contracts about oil extraction. So, there's a chance that we we might find out next year if Venezuela is actually going to have any. Uh, profit from this and a lot of people are saying that that's probably the case because the Venezuelan government has some leverage to negotiate like conditions that are better for the Venezuelan people so there's hope there um, but you know President Maduro was actually speaking to the press only a few days ago and he said that the Chevron license was a step in the right direction but that was it I mean It's not not something huge. The country's main demand continues to be eliminating all sanctions and the return of all the stolen funds and assets so the country can actually begin uh, a sustainable economic recovery. And what that brings me to the economy. Uh, So I think everybody knows that since last year, Venezuela has seen a small yet important economic stabilization after a long and still going economic crisis, and this is despite the country still being under sanctions. So last year, the country's GDP increased, inflation came down to single digits for the first time in many years. Just last April, uh, several financial institutions were predicting that Venezuela's economy would grow even more you know, even up to 20% this year. So this is all good news. And there are several factors that contributed to this modest economic improvement. And first, I think we have to highlight that Venezuela has like a really solid alliance with countries like China, Iran, and Russia. And these relations have been key to slightly lifting oil production. I mean, obviously, the oil industry still has no hope of reaching the production levels it had before sanctions. But nonetheless, this small increase has had a a positive effect on the economy because there's a little more income, a little more revenue. So, I mean, so oil production is is a huge factor in this somehow economic stabilization. But besides oil production going up a little, the government has also taken some, let's say, interesting measures, interesting economic measures. Um, I say interesting because basically this is like a liberalization of the economy. They have removed taxes on some imports, uh, lift price, price and exchange controls. Um, and, you know, with the exation of wages, the country is more or less dollarized now. Like you can use dollars to do anything here now. So the economic liberalization, and especially the fact that we are now a dollarized economy have brought like new new dynamics into the country. We have now some sectors of the population who have privileged access to dollars and they have taken advantage of the tax extensions to buy goods and to sell them in Venezuela and that's why there's been like a boom of expensive shops and restaurants and other businesses although this is mostly in caracas mostly in the capital and then of course we also have some people who have access to dollars because they have family in other countries that send them money and then we have uh, other people that are working for private companies that pay them in dollars and i just want to clarify that these private companies they aren't paying like huge salaries, like huge wages. No, I mean, but they are significantly significantly higher than what someone can earn in the public sector, for example. Uh, and there's also a really downside about the about working for private companies, which is that people are sort of like being forced to sacrifice some benefits, like social security, for example. But nonetheless, uh, this 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 like this small group of the population that have been able to have some financial freedom because of this dollarization now we have we also have the public sector employees and you know the public sector employees are the ones who have complained the most and with good reason about dollarization because they don't receive wages in dollars, and their salaries are not being increased to compensate for that. So most of them have to rely on second jobs or you know, do any, anything else so they can actually afford to buy food and to improve their conditions. And in general, besides the public sector employees, in general, the Venezuela population doesn't have access to dollars. And they haven't been able to improve their living conditions in any significant way, despite this small economic recovery that we're seeing. So all these different measures taken by the government, they have brought some life into the economy, but they have also increased social inequality. So, I mean, there's a lot I can say about social inequality, but I don't want to... Uh, talk about this alone, so I think I'm going to leave it here so we can all give our analysis about this so-called economic stabilization and especially the social inequality that we are seeing now.
1: Yeah, this was a great summary or even a great double summary by Andreina on, on sanctions and the economy. Indeed, the economy, uh, we call them interesting measures in terms of you know liberalization and so on. but. They might be unusual here in, in this context and all that we're used to, but if we look at them from a distance, they are very orthodox measures when it comes to what countries do in times in, in of economic crisis. And indeed, it, there is a worry that there is an economic recovery. It's very visible, but it's very unequally distributed. But maybe I'll, I'll leave the, the comments on, on the economy and, and uh, worrying inequality to Syria and go back to, to sanctions that Andreina made a, a very good summary, but I just wanted to, to add some complimentary bits. First of all, I think I don't need permission to plug in our own content in our own podcast. So we have indeed created a lot of uh, content on, on sanctions to help people understand that these measures are not just uh, troubling for Maduro and his associates, which is very much the measure, the, the idea that the corporate media tries to pass, but rather this is uh, collective punishment. And and this is not coming from us. This was a classification by the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And also UN experts on human rights have used this expression. So this is collective punishment on the Venezuelan population. And with the precise goal of creating as much suffering as necessary to trigger regime change. But of course, this hasn't happened. And when we were talking in the beginning of, of the Biden administration trying to recalibrate its strategy towards Guaido. It, it also wants to recalibrate uh, its uh, sanction strategy, but not out of any concern for the well-being of the Venezuelan population, just in terms of seeing what's the most effective way to oust the, the Maduro government. And this takes us to, to Chevron, because I think Andreina's conclusion that this, uh, for the time being, will benefit Chevron whether it will benefit Venezuela is, still remains to be seen. There's a lot of debate on what the license allows or doesn't. Even in the best case scenario, I mean, the most benevolent interpretation we can make of the license, the gains for Venezuela are, are limited. Uh, it also has to do with the fact that these projects that have been stopped require a lot of investment, and that's not going to happen in the near future. So I think a good way to put it is like Maduro said, it's a, it's a, it's a first step, perhaps the, the, the one the first significant step after all these maximum pressure measures that were put in place until the beginning of 2020 or 2021, rather, and this is the first uh, measure in the opposite direction that we've seen, but it's still limited. If it's the prelude to other wider and more interesting licenses, then it will be positive. For the time being, it's just uh, a way to keep the conversation going. I mean, just to put it in terms of figures uh, the benefits that Venezuela will get from the rise in production in these Chevron joint ventures, we should uh, remind people that Chevron is a minority stakeholder in four joint projects in Venezuela. Venezuelan law demands that uh, the Venezuelan state oil company, PDVSA, always hold the majority of shares in joint uh, oil projects. So the benefits coming from Chevron reaching the maximum production in its joint projects would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars every year. And we should contrast that to the consequences of the the U.S. oil embargo that was levied in January 2019. This is always the main measure that I highlight. And this, uh, assuming uh, oil prices at around $60 a barrel, barrel, of course, this is much higher right now. This causes damages uh, or lost income around $11 a year. So we should take into account just how hard the Venezuelan economy and the oil industry has been hit by these measures and just how uh, not that significant the Chevron license can be in that context. There's still a long way to go. And then maybe we'll get into this when we talk about the, what's, what's to come in 2023, what all the different actors are are looking for in, in this negotiation with, with elections in, in the horizon. But it's important and that's something that we always try to uh, address when, when it's misreported in, in the corporate media, that sanctions are still essentially all, all in place and causing a lot of damage to, to the Venezuelan population, to the Venezuelan people, despite this uh, modest economic recovery that we have been talking about.
2: First, I want to second what Andreina was saying about José Luis's work. Uh, it's really extraordinary. So thank you, José Luis. And also want to remind everybody who's listening to us that we are in the midst of a fundraiser, a 5 annual fundraiser, so uh, support Venezuela analysis. I want to uh, basically go along what uh, Ricardo was mentioning it in relation to sanctions. Basically, the amount of money that Venezuela has lost uh, through this criminal policy of the U.S. is between 20 and $30 billion up to now. Uh, between basically uh, money in banks and assets, so it's really extraordinary. I wanted to highlight that, of course, the impact of this is not only on the government, but mostly on the lives and bodies of people here in Venezuela. And we have indeed been being uh, visiting some of some of the communes that are building an alternative in a project that we call communal resistance. That really should be called communal resistance and and the construction of a new society, because one of the interesting things about Venezuelans is that they are not, uh, they don't assume themselves as victims. But uh, many Venezuelans, most Venezuelans uh, assume those themselves as subjects of transformation. I wanted to highlight that and then I wanted to go very quickly back to the issue with uh, economic recovery, which indeed in Caracas, especially in the center of Caracas, is very visible. Um, just last week, I went to the east of Caracas, which is the richest part of town, because I had a dentist appointment there. I generally don't go there. And um, the dentist is near, uh, su- um, I don't know what to call it, a super um, extraordinary store, luxury store that's called Avanti. And I actually popped in, and it's full of really uh, Purses and 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 all sorts of other extraordinarily expensive things like televisions, TV sets in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And right next to it, there's car dealerships for with Ferrari and Hummer cars. So the economic recovery is indeed very unequal. Um, I think it has to do uh, to a great degree with the kinds of policies that have been promoted. Um, uh, were those the only? Possible policies that could be promoted or not, uh, well, that's up for a debate, no? But the restriction of wages, the liberalization of prices and the exchange rate and the lifting of taxes on imports has really created a situation where, well, the rich are getting richer and the poor are not coming out of the pretty dire situation in which uh, they were a, f- a few months or years ago. I just wanted to highlight that, but I do want to highlight it again with uh, kind of like an eye on on hope, uh, because uh, we do see that the Venezuelan people are struggling and are building alternate an alternative society through communes uh, with many things stacked against themselves, but uh, with the uh, intention and commitment to build
0: a better world. And to be honest, that hope in is- expresses itself internationally as someone, as the only staff member who isn't based in Venezuela. I'm constantly talking to my colleagues and comrades here in Mexico about our need to pay attention to what's happening in Venezuela. They are still charting the course. They're still helping us serve as a guiding light in terms of what needs to be done and what can be done. And so we wanted to close this special episode with a really brief discussion about what to expect in 2023. So, you know, we're not politologos, opinologos, as they say, who peer into their crystal ball and trying to predict what's going to happen. But we do know that there's going to be certain things that are are going to come up, even though, you know, Venezuela is one of the hardest countries to predict what's going to happen with things happening so quickly. But nonetheless, we wanted to have this conversation. And I wanted to, we talked a little bit about economic recovery, but I wanted to talk very briefly about that uh, and what it implies for the next year. I'm kind of convinced that we're unlikely to see any kind of substantial sanctions relief until there are elections. I think it's part of the US strategy to try to put off any kind of sanctions relief until there is elections because sanctions relief would boost the economy and that would boost the fortunes of the Maduro government and the US is looking to do everything it can to prevent that from happening. And so it's going to be a very tough road up ahead. Uh, in, in that regard, it makes me worried because uh, I think history has shown us that the U.S. is perfectly capable of continuing to inflict this kind of collective punishment in order to secure its objectives. We saw it in Nicaragua with uh, in the '90s with the defeat of the Sandinista government there uh, many years ago, and I think it was very much driven by U.S. policy that was seeking to make life as difficult as possible as possible for the population in order to you know, secure legitimacy through the ballot box as they did with the election of the opposition there. And I think something similar is, is is set to happen in Venezuela in terms of trying to deny any kind of relief in order to favor the opposition's chances in the elections, which we know are just around the corner. So uh, real brief, I want to hear from people. What do you think is going to be the major things on the calendar in 2023?
3: So Jose Luis, I think what you were saying is absolutely correct, because I mean, sanctions are still blocking any possibility for sustainable economic recovery in Venezuela, and there are no signs of sanctions going away in the near future. And We all know that Washington has made it clear that uh, for them to lift these illegal sanctions against Venezuela, they want to see what they like to call free elections, which is just Their way to say that they want to see an end to the Maduro government. They want to see an end to the socialist project that began in Venezuela almost 25 years ago with Chavez. So one of the main things we're going to see in 2023 is, of course, this debate about elections. We know that Venezuela is going to have presidential elections because that is what it says in the Constitution. So, uh, I mean the main debate is going to be about how are we going to to continue involving the all the opposition sectors in Venezuela in this electoral path because we all know that the the opposition that is talking in Mexico with the Venezuelan government is only one sector of the opposition is the more radical sector of the opposition is the one that has as for sanctions is the one that has tried to topple the Maduro government with violent and um, but there are more opposition groups in Venezuela. And the government is talking to all of them. He's talking to all of them to make sure that uh, the, the electoral process is truly uh, inclusive and democratic as possible.
1: I mean, in, in Venezuela, we can make predictions at our own peril. But just very briefly, some of the stuff that I'm keeping an eye on for 2023. The predictions are that economic recovery is going to continue. But there are some warning signs. For example, there's been significant currency devaluation in the last couple of months. Inflation, even though it's still single digits, and we should mention single digits, monthly inflation, not year-to-year inflation. And it remains to be seen whether... Uh, It will remain stable or if at some point the government will be faced with this dilemma where it has to either reintroduce regulation, which will uh, kind of antagonize a private sector that has been more or less on board with everything that's been implemented in in recent times. So that's something to keep an eye on, assuming that the global sanctions context is still uh, unchanged, which is, uh, at least for a time being, the most likely scenario. Because as José Luis was saying, uh, the U.S. does not really want to boost the boost Chavismo's chances in an upcoming presidential election. It's scheduled for 2024, although there are ever louder rumors that it's going to be moved forward to 2023. That would have to be the result of some kind of negotiation between the Venezuelan government and the hardline opposition, although we know it really is negotiated with the United States. So if the elections are brought forward, what does the Venezuelan government get in exchange? That's still very much the jostling that's uh, taking place to get to, the, to this electoral context, which is, a, which is absolutely pivotal in the, in the best possible conditions. And the final story, which uh, we shouldn't get into too much detail, but I'm sure we'll analyze in the future, is that CITCO, CITCO is the Venezuelan oil subsidiary in the U.S., is currently uh, undergoing a court order auction process, which sh- will move forward in 2023 that has to do with creditors. So there's been a, a long process with a lot of opposition, uh, I mean, complicity, there's no other way of putting it, that has put in parallel Venezuela's most important asset abroad. So as always, uh, lots of things on the horizon. And... Uh, with a little self-advertising and Venezuelan analysis is where you can keep up with all of that.
2: That is indeed right. And uh, we will be seeing almost for sure elections as as uh, Ricardo and Andreina were saying. They might happen in July. They may happen in December. The elections will be presidential and national assembly elections. The presidential elections are actually due in December of 2024. So this would be elections uh, this this would be pushed forward, and we will see what happens with uh, with those processes. But we actually are pretty much uh, convinced that the sovereign forces will uh, will remain, because uh, basically the opposition, uh, the right wing, even though they have a pretty powerful ally, which is U.S. imperialism, is actually very weak. Uh, they're they are divided and um, they do not have a project that they can show us their own. And, well, next year we will also see the continuation of struggles of grassroots movements organizing for a better society. We will see more feminist marches for sure. It will be an interesting year, and we will keep you
0: up to date with it. Great. I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks so much, everybody. Andreina, Sira, Ricardo, as always, excellent analysis. It's such a privilege to work with everybody on this team. It's honestly some of the best work I've ever done as a journalist and as a political organizer. I want to thank everybody for joining us for this special year-end episode. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground English language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Telegram. And remember that our work is 100% funded by readers. And we're actually in the middle of our 2022 fundraising drive. So please consider making a one-time donation or even better become a supporter on Patreon. Thanks again.